Welcome to Making of the Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today what we're going to be talking about is how the new use of fossil fuels in the 18th and 19th centuries created changes in politics, culture, and the economy that are still haunting us today. Now, I want to open up by why this is important. Now, I think that one of the things that history does is it allows us to make stories about how we came to be in the place that we are. And one of the tasks of environmental history is that it's trying to think through ways that we can construct narratives that allow us to see the complicated, long-term, difficult, contradictory, and uncertain processes that put us into the place that we are with the rise of global warming and global capitalism. Now, this might sound a little bit too academic, so I just want to put this into context. Right now, we can all agree that global warming is one of the biggest political problems we have, but it doesn't seem to affect us very much every day, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of really practical things that we can do to solve it. Why is that? Well, global warming is invisible, slow, uncertain, and global, and all of these things come together to mean that it's really hard to make stories about, and we need to make stories about it if we want to use political action to help mitigate it. Now, global warming is slow. We recognize that it takes hundreds of years for it to happen fully. We are at the tail end, or right in the middle, I don't know, depending on your politics, of a fossil fuel economy that's been going on since the 1800s. And we are only right now seeing uh, the beginnings of dramatic changes to the climate because of global warming. It is also, of course, invisible. When I talk about global warming and, 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 and climate change, what I'm talking about is this effect that I know only because I've read a bunch of newspaper stories about it that argue that a scientific measurement, uh, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, is going to lead in certain kinds of climate models to dramatic change. This does not have a really big emotional resonance. This is not like seeing a war or a picture of a crying child or of uh, hearing about a person's struggle for liberty. This is something that is dry, cold, and also something that I only know about if I have trust in the technologies of information that allow me to perceive these scientific things going on in the background. Furthermore, global warming is uncertain. We do not know what is going to happen with global warming in the future. We're pretty sure, or scientists are pretty sure, that the climate will change rather drastically, but We cannot pinpoint exactly how or when or what will happen because the Earth's climate is such a complex system. Finally, global warming is global. It happens everywhere. It is the product of everybody on Earth's actions. And it's also global in the way that it's uneven. Global warming will affect certain people far more than it affects others. 
uh, bourgeois middle-class Americans, even if we get really bad global warming, are probably not going to suffer as much as farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. People who live on coasts will suffer a lot more than people who live in interiors. People who live in poor countries or islands will suffer much, much more than people who live in rich countries or continental empires. And of course, global warming implicates different regions of the world more than others. People who are rich now, like America or Britain or France, seem to have more responsibility for the coming climate catastrophe than countries that are poor, like uh, Lesotho. So one of the things that environmental history can do is it can help us make stories about this slow, invisible, uncertain, and global thing so that we can start to make it an object of our politics, so that we can force politicians and the public to take it seriously and work to change it. One of the most effective stories uh, that's come out in the past couple years that helps us frame what climate change is, is the concept of the Anthropocene. And I wish it had a better name, but it, 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 it's, it's okay. It sounds really sciency, which is my problem with it. Uh, but what the Anthropocene is, is it suggests that over the past, you know, 100, 150, 200 years, we're actually living in a new geological era one that is marked by the human activity on the world's climate and geology. The test of this is a thought experiment. Imagine that you have an alien landing on the Earth a million, two million, three million years from now. Humanity is either obliterated or off in the stars playing, you know, inter intergalactic Skyrim, and there's no trace of humanity left. No buildings, no history, no books. But this alien visitor to our planet, looking only at marks in the geology, looking only at traces of the atmosphere left in ice sheets, looking only at sediments uh, uh, left in, in, in rocks through our cities, could see that humans were there. We, humanity's actions on the earth, are creating a new kind of geological age, one that is vastly different from the age before us. Why this is a problem is that the geological age before us, the Holocene, is the age in which human beings evolved. It is the geological era in which we are most adapted to living. And so if we change it, we are kind of, you know, changing our, our Earth outside of our own uh, uh, biological comfort zones. What the Anthropocene story allows us to do is it allows us to picture our effects on the climate as something that is truly epochal. It allows us to take the slowness of our changes in the climate that, that are happening because of the fossil fuel economy and bump it up to show how drastic, quick, and momentous they are in world time. But the Anthropocene story is really big. It works on, you know, timescales of geologic change, and so it might not be uh, effective in all the ways that we want our global warming story to be effective. Particularly, it doesn't deal very well with the uh, geographic unevenness of the responsibility for climate change. The Anthropocene story just looks at climate change as this kind of external effect that happens. 
But if we want to look at history in the ways that contemporary historians look at history, we want to understand the social, political, and cultural causes of the Anthropocene so that we can make new kinds of narratives about it that allow us to create new kinds of political solidarity. So I'm going to go through uh, three or four different ways of viewing the uh, uh, story of the Anthropocene that includes social, political, and cultural actors. So the first is I'm going to talk about one of the most common views, which we might call the economic view. And it's actually one of the ones that I find most convincing, probably because it's you know the simplest and isn't saddled down by a bunch of theoretical constructs. The idea of the uh, economic view is this. Around 1750 or 1800, because of scarcity of energy, a couple people in Britain started to unlock the energy that was in coal. This new cheap energy allowed a new kind of production and consumption to develop, one that was energy and capital rich instead of labor rich. This spread because it was more competitive, more competitive both in making consumer goods and also more competitive in waging war and enforcing power. Now, when most people talk about this, they talk about machines. Coal, this pent-up energy in coal, allows people to run machines that then allows them to make lots of things like cotton and guns. But for me, when I think of this, it's not just machines that matter, but it's all of these energy-intensive processes that start to become cheaper starting in around 1800 or 1830, depending on when you choose and what you define cheaper as. These things are things like making iron, which is super important, remember, because iron makes railroads, which allows us to conquer distance. Things like blowing glass or brewing beer or baking or uh, transport or leather tanning. All of these things might not be especially machine intensive, but they're incredibly energy intensive. And they all get much, much cheaper because of the energy that is in coal. Once this cheap energy regime catches on, then it locks everybody into using cheap energy. Because if you use another source of energy like human power or water power, your stuff is just too expensive. But there's a couple alternatives to this economic view of uh, the uh, rise of fossil fuel economy. One is from a guy named Andreas Malm. And for him, it's not the economics of cheap energy that really explain why they catch on. Instead, it is power. And he explains this by looking at this question. In 1820, this moment that in that story I just told you, everybody in Britain is switching from uh, wind water power to coal power because it's cheaper, there's a problem. Actually, says Malm, in the 1820s, Coal power was more expensive in mechanical technology than water power was. This means that to explain the Industrial Revolution, to explain this new fossil fuel economy, we don't just need to explain how people made inventions, but also why they made inventions to do something that was more expensive than the alternative, right? So for Malm, there's a couple reasons why coal power eventually uh, won out over 
uh, water power. And very few of them are actually economic. They're all social and cultural reasons. The first is that to make water power work, you need a ton of cooperation between people. To make a, a series of aqueducts that is complicated enough and uh, robust enough to actually fuel as a prime mover the industrial capacity of a place like Lancashire, you would need capitalists to join together and cooperate on gigantic undertakings. The problem is, is that capitalists in Mounds U are capitalists. They're competitive. They want profit. They want to overcome their enemies, the other capitalists. And so they will not cooperate with one another. We can see this as an example of the tragedy of the commons. Coal wins out over water, not because it's more efficient, not because it's better at actually making things, but instead because it's more selfish. We can also put this into context of our story of two islands that we talked about a couple episodes ago. The coal version of this story for Malm is this individualistic, Western, energy-intensive mode of production. The water power example would be more something along the lines of Tokugawa Japan that is more efficient, but demands much more cooperation and much more social control. The other reason why uh, coal won out over water power is that coal was better with labor problems. You could replace striking workers with machines that were run on coal. In Preston in 1836, for instance, there was a uh, strike by a bunch of weavers who wanted to start a union, and instead of you know negotiating with the, the weavers or letting them start a union or giving them a raise, the owners bought a bunch of coal-powered uh, weaving machines, and you know there you go. You don't need a union and you don't need workers if you have a bunch of weaving machines. Also, coal allowed factories and industries to be concentrated in cities. The problem with water power is that you have to build it along rivers. And even though Malm insists that there's enough rivers and enough waterfalls in all of Britain to actually do this, the problem is then that you get factories spread out over very large distances. With coal, which is movable, you can actually concentrate industry in particular places, which gives certain kinds of economic benefits known as clustering effects. Uh, if you have a lot of capitalists in one place, you have lots of know-how in one place, you have engineers talking with engineers in their downtime, you have people competing to make new machines, it's just generally better for innovation. It's why everybody spends so much money living in the Bay Area, because they assume that if they're tech workers, they'll go hang out and drink and party with other tech workers, and then get better at innovating stuff. Now also, there's a complicated argument here where, where Malm suggests that coal use allows the bourgeois to imagine that material work is this kind of infinite uh, possibility that is that is that is embodied in coal. And I'll, I, I find this kind of hard to understand, but I'll explain it by way of analogy. Just as we've talked about 19th century middle class ideology as separating the world of male work in the public from female work at home, so too does coal allow the same middle class ideology to separate material work, which is in machines and coal and steam, from the work of the middle class people of organizing and innovating and stuff. Now, 
I want to leave aside the drawbacks and the merits of, of, of Malm's story, and I just want to point out what you get from it, why it's important to try to make this kind of story. Now, the importance of Malm's story is that it doesn't take the Industrial Revolution just as this simple economic inevitability. It doesn't say that, okay, coal's cheaper, so bam, you get the Industrial Revolution. Instead, it argues that it's about social and cultural relations, that there's a cultural side to this change from the uh, mineral uh, or organic economy to the mineral economy. And to understand this change, we need to understand the social side of it. And it has definite implications for politics today. The economic view of the uh, change from uh, uh, organic energy to mineral energy would argue that politics should happen this way. Because the Industrial Revolution was slow, based on prices, and driven by innovation, so too will the new energy regime be slow, based on prices, and driven by innovation. No, 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 says Malm's view. The Industrial Revolution was not slow and driven by prices and driven by innovation. Instead, the Industrial Revolution was driven by the needs of very small concatenations of capitalists in strategic places who wanted to monopolize labor. And because of this, when we transition out of fossil fuel energy, what we need to do is not just invent our ways out of the, the fossil fuel trap, we need to think about the way that the economy is structured. We need to think about new ways of cooperating with each other and making things instead of just trying to make, you know, the next fancy fuel cell. And if you can see, you know, a big picture of Karl Marx behind your image of Andreas Mom's head, then you're completely right. This is a very Marxist version of this story. It's arguing that no, 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 we don't need invention to get off of fossil fuels. We need revolution. Now, there's another view uh, uh, from a guy named Jason Moore, and I'm just going to be really quick about uh, uh, his view because, I mean, it's kind of complicated and uses like the most jargon I've ever read in a single academic book, and that's saying something. So for Moore, capitalism isn't about the exploitation of coal per se, like it is for Malm. For more, capitalism runs off of a perverse creation of a bunch of dualisms, a bunch of oppositions. These are things like nature and society, man and woman, worker and owner. The creation of these dualisms allows capitalists to exploit cheap inputs and through that exploitation, through that appropriation, generate profit. So for him, the important thing is not just coal, but cheap nature. And for that, he, he identifies things like cheap raw materials, which we can identify as slave-produced cotton, cheap labor, which is uh, not only the proletariat that we meet so often, but also uh, 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 denigrated female domestic labor, cheap food, which we can also uh, look at uh, as, as uh, uh, slave-produced sugar, and cheap energy. Because there's a kind of, of forced dualism in capitalism, it forces everybody to see all of those cheap inputs as things that don't matter. And this allows there to be this illusion of profit and accumulation. Now, 
for him, capitalism starts in 1450, and it's it's all really about this intellectual process of creating dualisms. But for me, it's not entirely convincing, and I don't want to go into all of it just to say that whereas Malm is very material and social, whereas he looks at the way that coal is used and water is used, for more, it's all more about intellectual things. And that changes the source of, 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 of the political project that each person is advocating. For more, the change will not be worldwide organization or sabotage or whatever. For more, the change has to come from intellectuals daydreaming up new ways of imagining society. And thankfully, if you follow more, then more has a lot of stuff to tell you about how the world ecology movement, this thing that he invented, will change everything. Now, a third view of how this fossil fuel economy changes society and culture is uh, uh, more about the 20th century, and it comes from Timothy Mitchell's book, Carbon Democracy. So for Timothy Mitchell, what his big story is, is that he's trying to retell the story of 20th century democracy, looking at it not as this vast intellectual or even cultural uh, story, uh, but rather a story of oil. So for Mitchell explaining uh, things like, like democracy, you don't reach back to Abraham Lincoln, you don't reach back to George Washington, you don't reach back to Locke and Montesquieu. What you need to do is you need to look at the places where people actually advocated for democracy. And for him, this takes place in the late 19th century. The big story is that energy regimes create ways of producing new kinds of goods and the workers in these new kinds of production methods gain different kinds of political power. This makes politics in the 20th century not simply a matter of people debating about ideas, but rather groups maneuvering around one another to ensure that they have monopolies of power. So, what on earth does that mean in practice? Well, with the coal-powered economy of the 19th century, it was possible for workers in small areas of the economy to shut down everything. So you have coal miners getting the, the, the raw material that runs the entire national economy. You have railroad workers who move this raw material from place to place. And you have dock workers who ship the raw materials of the international economy from one place to another. These three privileged sites of workers have the unbridled opportunity to stick their fingers in the works of capitalism and stop it. And stop it, they did. In the late 19th century, you get a series of worldwide national labor strikes that cause, in Mitchell's view, capitalism to sit up and take notice. It are, it's these strikes, it's these raw demonstrations of the power of the worker that allows there to be the creation of mass democratic politics in the 20th century. It is because of the uh, industrial action of working class labor movements in the 19th century that we get things like the eight hour day and uh, 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 in universal suffrage and uh, 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 labor parties and even a language that uh, uh, suggests that the government should be working for everybody's material prosperity. It's because at this particular moment, workers actually had power 
because they could sabotage capitalism. The big change comes from the switch from coal to oil. Coal is really easy to sabotage. Because it's heavy, it's mainly produced locally. And it takes a lot of labor to get out of the ground, a lot of labor to move, and a lot of labor to use. You need uh, miners, and you need people loading it onto railways, and you need people taking the coal and shoving it into uh, furnaces. And so because of this, you get a lot of places where workers can just throw up their hands and go, no, I'm no longer doing this. Oil, on the other hand, is very different. Firstly, it's in only a few places. You can get oil reserves only in a couple places on Earth, and they tend to be out of the way. They're certainly far away from the centers of global capitalism. And oil, unlike coal, is relatively light and easy to move because it is a high-energy liquid. It's also easy to use. You don't once it's 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 refined. You don't need people to uh, uh, pour you know pour it into an engine. You can just let gravity do this. And it's really easy to ship from place to place through pipelines and oil tankers. And because of this, there's far fewer places that uh, workers can actually gum up the works of capitalism. And so this switch from coal to oil denigrates uh, uh, the international democratic movement. You get democracy when you have polities that are organized around coal that are worried about workers. But because oil is international, because like cotton, it's a raw material that's produced elsewhere, democracy does not exactly thrive in an oil regime. Instead of getting workers fighting for their own rights, with the oil regime, you have workers separated by geography, race, and skill. Instead of having dock workers and miners and railroad people and engineers and, and stevedores all understanding that they're part of a national labor movement, you have an international division of labor where uh, educated engineers from one country come to a place and boss around unskilled labor from another country. And this means that oil is not able to be sabotaged in the same way that coal is sabotaged. And so it's much less resistant to the kinds of demands that forced capitalism to reform itself in the 19th century. Now, I just want to point out a couple similarities. These views are all seeking to explain the same thing. Why is it? that despite all of the evidence, despite all of the worry, despite all of the political energy behind it, we cannot even begin to solve the global warming problem. They all identify the same reason why, and they take pretty much the same approach. The problem is that the fossil fuel regime that we're living in is not simply a production of technology and economics but it's a production of culture, society, and power. And it's this power that is keeping our current energy system locked in. You can call this, you know, self-interest or class or rent-seeking, but the big point is that the people who are currently benefiting from the energy system don't want to give it up. 
And for both, they see this as something that happens with energy regimes. They see the change in energy regimes not simply as some sort of invisible and natural economic change, something that's value neutral, but something that is always affected by culture, politics, and society. And so for the solution to whatever global environmental catastrophes are coming, they look for something that includes culture and politics and society. But my problem is this, does it make a good story? And I don't just mean that frivolously, I mean that I think that one of the big problems of the environmental movement right now is getting us to be able to make stories that have emotional effects on people so that there can be a kind of uh, groundswell of support of changes in the economy. I'm not entirely convinced that these stories work in that way, even though they're incredibly careful, even though they're very well researched. I think that we need a new kind of identification of what's happening here. Uh, and that's in part why I focus on uh, a, a consumption, on um, social groups, on, on everyday life. My friend Craig, who you, you, you met a couple days ago, uh, uh, makes fun of me and says that I'm the only historian in our entire department that studies fun things. And I study fun things because I think that if we can connect the story of the things that give the modern world its value with this unsustainable energy regime, then we can maybe make a story that allows us to get out of it. If we can recognize that it's not only exploitation and uh, uh, class struggle, which we all know are bad, that cause global warming, but it's the good stuff too. It's the fact that we have TVs and cell phones and uh, high-density cities and books and, 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 and longevity that is the problem, as much as uh, exploitation. Thanks very much for listening to this historiography-heavy making of a historian. Um, I think tomorrow I'm going to try to give you just like a straight story. Uh, I don't make any promises. Uh, thanks tons to Jonathan Lear for the music, and thanks to Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes and share us on social media. Visit the website at historian.live, light a candle in my honor, pretend it's my birthday and send me birthday presents even though it's not my birthday. Uh, do all those things that you do to anonymous people on the internet who you uh, uh, enjoy the content of. Um, thanks very much for listening, and I will see you guys tomorrow.